Welcome to Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare. Joining me is Louise Welsh to talk about The Second Cut, her follow-up novel to The Cutting Room, her debut novel published 20 years ago in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Louise. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you for having me. Or perhaps I should say welcome to the podcast, Professor Welsh, because you are a professor of creative writing at the University of Glasgow and, in addition to being an award-winning crime fiction author, a playwright, an editor of poetry, and an opera librettist. So I'm officially intimidated. (laughs) Well, please don't be, because I still can't spell. And I got a lovely, a very friendly email from one of my oldest friends and colleagues today, where she corrected some of my punctuation. So nobody should be intimidated by me. (laughs) Uh, That said, before we start, I I want to admit that I am behind the curve with the second cut. I thought it was going to be published in in May in the US, but it was published in January, which threw me off entirely. And then I got COVID. Uh, So the second cut and its predecessor, The Cutting Room, are monumental in crime fiction. So I'm delighted that you agreed to come on the podcast in spite of my appalling timing. Oh, I think it's perfect timing. I'm sorry you had uh, COVID because we've all we've all been suffering with this in one way or another, haven't we? And it's it's not fun. It's no fun at all. And it felt like a childhood illness. It felt like one of these illnesses where you were just consumed but I could read. I, I was very lucky I could read and I got this intensity of reading. And uh, that's all I, all I did. I read. I couldn't even watch television. So I felt I got, in a way, a present of some hours just to lose myself in, in books again. In the second cuts afterward, you wrote about the white hot rage that compelled the writing of the first book, The Cutting Room. It was not mentioned. I, I went, I don't, I do have it here. Um, I went to look to see if you had an afterword or an acknowledgement in this copy, and you didn't. So you made the point that the landscape for the LGBTQ plus community has for the most part evolved for the better. But it was the keep the clause language of 20 years ago in Scotland that sent chills down my spine. Uh, LGBTQ plus rights may have come along, but in states like Texas and Alabama, Criminalization is creeping back in and decisions in our Supreme Court will be next, I fear. So can you talk about what, I know we're here to talk about this, the second cut, but talk about what compelled you to write, I thought, you know, being the gormless person I am, just a compelling crime fiction read, but I realize it's a compelling queer crime fiction read. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's, it's it's strange to think back to twenty years ago, isn't it? Because we were we're different people, you know, as we as we grow up and develop. But you're right. Uh, I wrote that book in anger, and I think the anger comes out often in humor. And, you know, it's a really sharp sort of humor that that runs through that book, the the cutting room, and through the second cut. Uh, at this point, oh gosh, in two thousand two thousand and two when I was writing the book and when the book came out. uh, At that point, we had, there was a campaign in Scotland to keep the clause. And the clause was Clause 28, Section 28, which uh, outlawed the the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools. And in effect, what this meant uh, was that in schools and public life and the media, 
there was no uh, representation of uh, sex education for children around queer queerness, around uh, what it might be to be gay. Uh, there was a, a, an endorsement of a hostile environment towards LGBTQ plus people. And when I say that homosexuality for men, I think it was 1982 in Scotland that it became uh, legal. It was the mid 1960s in England, early 80s in Scotland. And of course the law wasn't uh, imposed, but that atmosphere was there and the atmosphere of uh, contempt towards queer people, uh, it's kind of underlying violence often towards queer people, which people in the United States will be familiar with as well. Uh, a lack of rights, a lack of openness. I mean, certainly the idea of uh, equal marriage, which we have now in, in Scotland and the wider United Kingdom and most parts of Europe and many parts of the US, that was a, a, that was a dream that would never have happened, you know? So um, yeah, so this, it was a very, very, very different time. And then the afterwards to the second cut, I wanted to acknowledge that change, but also to acknowledge, Nancy, what you're, talk you're talking about, the precarity of that change and the idea that we have uh, equal rights at the moment and we have, uh, I don't know, uh, we have hate moss. So if, if we're, you know, if people are beaten up, they can go to the police and the police are meant to carry through, you know, these hate laws, which in the, in the past, people might have gone to the police and worried that they get beaten up again. You know, so, so we have a more uh, open and, and uh, equal society at the moment in terms of LGBTQ plus in, in these parts, but uh, it's precarious and it may not last. And already we've had uh, conservative politicians in Britain talking about, you know, we should reintroduce Clause 28. Uh, the society, you know, these changes have gone too far. So we have to be conscious and on the alert, uh, as you do as well in, in the US. The laws that they're talking about in Texas, where they're going to investigate parents of trans children, the laws in Alabama, where it's going to be a criminal offense for physicians to attend to trans um, youth are, I think, just opening the door yeah. uh, to it's, more yeah. repressive things. And, and that's why I think your books are so entertaining because crime fiction, first of all, I don't even like to use the, the term, but fiction opens the door and George Sanders said can be the training wheels for empathy. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, a, you know, th these are, as you say, terrifying times and we, we fight the same battles over again and we fight the battles that our, our, our predecessors fought and we, you know, we need to be on the alert. And uh, many people in Scotland and the wider United Kingdom are so distressed by the overturning of Roe versus Wade. You know, we, we, we are in solidarity with uh, people in, in your country. And, uh, you know, and we also, we know this, you know, what happens in the United States often comes next to our country. So there's, you know, there's a, there's self-interest there as well, but uh, yeah, we fight the same battles, don't we? And we acknowledge that our four 
mothers and fathers uh, paved the way and that we're walking in their footsteps. And we have an obligation, you know, to, to keep fighting these battles. Um, I think you're right. I think I, I don't mind using the, the term crime fiction, genre fiction. I, I, I think this is a genre that is based on social awareness and politics. I think the best of the genre is underpinned by politics. And often that's why I think crime fiction dates rather beautifully. You know, we can travel through time because the social observation within the best of crime fiction uh, tells us about what society was like in the past, politically, socially, dress, you know, what people were wearing, what they're eating. There's a great deal of observation there. And, uh, you know, if we think of, uh, I love the writer Chester, Chester Himes. I think Chester Himes uses, you know, he uses the politics of offense. He shows us the streets that he's familiar with in Harlem. He uh, he talks, he uses uh, absurdity, but also a great deal of social awareness and social observation as well. And I think that that mixture of uh, politics, social awareness, scabrous humor, uh, you know, and, and the, the willingness to offend sometimes, the willingness to say, we would say to stick, would you say this is stick two fingers up to society? Um, you know, sort of rude gestures <laughs> and, and to care absolutely, but also not, not to care about what, what the response is going to be because there is an essential truth there that you can stand by. So if, if, if uh, you know, if, if, if people don't like the politics, ah, oh well, you know, that's, that's, that's okay too, because uh, the politics are true. <laughs> so I, I guess we have to talk about, is it, do you pronounce it Rilke or Rilke? I say Rilke, but I, I'm not, Rilke. you know, I, I think people, also I'm somebody, uh, there's lots of words I read in books that I never, I never heard said out loud, especially as a child. So I think whatever pronunciation people want to use is fine. But I say, I say Rilke, yeah. But we have to talk about him because he's the central character of your book and he's the protagonist and the narrator. And so him and his merry band of pranksters, as you describe them, um, I find him so compelling. You know, he's a cynic with a heart of gold. Uh, after rereading The Cutting Room, I'm completely convinced he's a romantic. Uh, he's certainly a good person. He's a kind person. And often to his own chagrin, um, you know, he's compelled to do the right thing, even when it's not in his best interest. So I have to ask, did that make him a difficult character to work with? <laughs> I loved, uh, you know, each time that I've uh, written Rilke, it's just, it's been a joy. It's been an absolute joy. And uh, I didn't go back and read The Cutting Room. So I, I, my, my intention had been to go back, to read that book, to re-familiarize myself with the voice and everything that happened. And I, I made myself a, a day to, you know, I made, I got my nice seat, I got my cup of tea, I took the time off and then I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to read what I'd written 20 years before. And I just thought if I can access his voice, I can access it. And if I can't, I can't. And it was, uh, it was as, as if he'd, yeah, as if we'd been walking along the street and he caught my eye, you know, and then we had this conversation. It, 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 it slid back into him actually quite easily. Um, but I think you're right. He's in many senses uh, drawn from that archetypal, hard-boiled, 
crime fiction. He's not a detective, but he fulfills that role. Uh, even the name Rilke, I wanted to take a poet, you know, like Marlowe or like Campion or, uh, you know, the, 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 these are like Spencer, you know, the great detective Spencer that's always also uh, based on the, the name of a poet. Um, yeah, so he is, he's somebody who walks his own line. He, his morals are not everybody's morals, but he does have morals and he does have a, as you say, an essential code, uh, which is, I think at one point he says, you know, I, I don't mind immorality, but I don't like cruelty. And I think there's a, a difference there. You know, people, society may decide that what you're doing is immoral, but actually it's cruelty that really matters. And so sometimes uh, sometimes people are breaking the law, but there are different laws as well, aren't there? There are laws that sometimes should be broken. And then there are laws that are essential codes uh, that to break them, you know, the, the, the law of, uh, I don't know what we would call it. I can't think of the right word. Natural laws <laughs> about not hurting people and that that kind of thing. Sort of golden rule, <clears throat> golden rule kind of laws. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, and Rilke, Rilke essentially knows the golden rule. <laughs> Rilke has spent his entire career working for Rose at Bowery Auction House, and in the second cut, he like the first cut, like the cutting room, he gets a tip from a friend on a house that's chock-a-block with antiques. Uh, and that particular pal, Jojo, ends up dead. And that's one of the threads of this story. But he pursues the owner of the house because that's his job and that's how he makes his livelihood. That's how he helps Rose stay in business. And old houses are full of secrets. And Rilke is drawn to, excited by, and eventually demoralized by the secrets he uncovers. But he always has to unravel the riddle and unraveling always gets him into trouble. Good trouble, as John Lewis might say, but trouble nevertheless. Yes. And the, the trouble is where the interest lies. Yes. Isn't That's it? That's a story. <laughs> yeah. And he's somebody who knows also the, the textures of things, the provenance of things. And I guess in the, the first novel, The Cutting Room, it's uh, trying to discover the provenance of what he comes across which in that book is some really uh, disturbing old photographs and trying to discover, are these real? Does he have to do something about it or can he let them lie? And I, I think the idea of uh, knowing provenance, knowing the texture of the world is something that attracts me to Rilke. He's the only character that I've written that's allowed to know what all the different woods are, all the different metals. He can look at something and date it. You know, he, he knows the, that texture. Um, but yes, the idea of going in, it, it, the, the book is split, the second book is split between Glasgow and Galloway, between the city and the countryside. And Rilke is comfortable in the city. The city is his place. The countryside, oh, so, you know, it's a place where nobody will hear you scream. <laughs> he finds it much more dangerous and he feels that he sticks out. But of course, there is the draw of this fantastic, uh, old house and these houses are becoming increasingly rare you know uh, there's a house that's been lived in for generations and is now going to be cleared the contents are going to be revealed to the world and he is uh, he and his uh, auction house crew are going to be the ones that are going to be able to sell it and hopefully make some money um, so but 
as murky. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about this last night um, when I couldn't sleep because who can sleep? Um, <laughs> secrets always beget secrets. So if you have a multi-generational home out in the country with secrets in every cubby and corner, uh, chances are they've seeped outside the walls and kind of, you know, have permeated the region. And, and that's, that's very much uh, the case in the second cut, as well as the cutting room. Like you said, he looks in the first book, he looks into the provenance of photographs that are disturbing and comes across other just despicable crimes. And that's, without introducing any spoilers, that's kind of what happens in the second cut as well. There's, there's um, uh, lots of bad goings on in the country as well as the city. The country is not immune. I, you know, all these ideas that the real America is out in the, you know, middle of the country and on the farms. It's like, it's just as evil. Evil can live anywhere. It can, can't it? Yes. And the, you know, what, what, uh, what begets these crimes that often the greed, you know, the economic imperative, the idea that, uh, you know, I, I think of novelists in a way as being, I was talking about this with one of my friends yesterday and saying, gosh, I've always felt that as a writer, I'm essentially a grifter. You know, we're, we're making these stories and selling them and it's, it's benign and it's fun and, you know, hopefully it doesn't do any harm. It's not so far away from being a grifter, is it? We're using our mind and we're thinking, how can I, how can I sell this? How can I get this out? What will people, what will people like? What will appeal? What appeals to me? What can I live with? What can I write that will keep my interest for, for a year or two? Um, yeah, but that that idea of the the criminal world, the world of drugs, the world of uh, contemporary slavery, the world of exploitation. Uh, the family stories that that you know that 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 lie there there is much present in the countryside although uh you, you think it's I, I always and i am a city person so there will be people listening that will say no people listening here in the countryside will say no you've got it completely wrong but i always feel it's harder to hide in the countryside there's more space you know and i'm aware i love the scottish uh, highlands and islands and I love going up to the Western Isles and Orkney and Shetland. And you'll go for a walk sometimes and you'll be, you feel that you're in the middle of nowhere. And then suddenly there'll be a little flash of light. Uh, the, 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 the light that you get when sun, shine, sun hits somebody's binoculars <laughs> and you realise you're under observation. <laughs> You know, you're 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 never you're never alone, are you? You feel that you're, and I'm sure this is the same in uh, rural places, you know, elsewhere. Uh, so yes, Aroka feels that. You know, he feels, and he knows uh, the city of Glasgow, which is a very. This is the place that I love to live. You know, it's a it's a great city. It's a city with the high pollution that we're trying to get down. It's a city where in the early seven, you know, late sixties, early seventies. A huge scar was made through our city, this big motorway, uh, which is poisoning everybody. Uh, Rilke knows that to move to the countryside, you know, he might add a decade onto his life, but no, he's not going to do that. He'd rather die sooner in the city 
<laughs> then move to the beautiful countryside where there's no litter and uh, you know people will know know his business again was one of the joys of uh, revisiting Rilke because uh, he is the same age more or less as he was in book one but he's he's sort of he's kept his sort of mid 40s he's still mid 40s 20 years on and yet has an awareness of everything that's passed in the last 20 years and I think this is something you can do in literature you can have characters who stay at the same age you know I, I don't know if you uh, are familiar with the children's stories, Just William, by Richmond Crompton, this uh, English writer, and William is always 11 and a half. And they start in the 1920s, they continue to the 60s. He stays the same age, and I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to do this with Rilke. He's always the same age. I was going to ask you about that. You have defied the space-time continuum. You yes. have kept Rilke and Rose and Anderson. Um, yes all the same age but you have but the time in which they are living he's no longer meeting uh assignations in parks and and um bars he's now uh signed up to grinder so good for him yeah he's tech savvy tech savvy So bear with me on this one. Nine years ago, I interviewed Lee Child in anticipation of his participation in the second Bloody Scotland. And one of the themes of that year's gathering was the common territory between Tartan Noir and Nordic Noir. Only Lee did not agree. He felt that Scotland in particular had more in common with elements in the US. So now I'll come to the point. His comments came to mind as I thought about the relationships between the characters in the second cut, who have known each other since school. And I'm thinking of uh, Anderson, who is a policeman and Rilke. And that's a very working class New York City kind of sensibility, especially in the Irish and Italian neighborhoods. Friends ended up on both sides of the law and that can make for interesting interactions. And of course, Anderson is besotted with Rose, who is Rilke's boss, but I wanted to ask about that dynamic because, uh, you know, there is a there is an uncomfortable uh, relationship with Polis that uh, many Scots, especially someone in a business like Real Case, have. And, and Lee Child's point. I went back and read the interview. Lee Child's point was in in the Nordic countries, the state is more an accepted partner than something that can be potentially confrontational, uh, that only criminals need to fear the state in the Nordic area. Whereas, you know, someone like Rilke who who might skirt around the laws um, of ownership, let's say, provenance, might feel, you know, know, there, there might be a moral quandary, but not a cruelty one. So anyway, thank you for bearing with me and, and, what do you think? Am I insane? Well, I, I am, but... No, I think it's a really, really good point. And I think uh, I was immediately thinking of the Martin Beck books and how, uh, you know, the, I, I'll mispronounce the names, the value and mm-hmm. uh, the, these, these novels yeah. which are based around, you know, the, the very start, we might think, of Nordic noir is immediately into the, the police procedural and... Uh, police who we feel comfortable with but then I remember that they're based they're they're inspired partly by Ed McBain you know in the 
the precinct books where, uh, where we're still we're still rather on the side of the police and, and those books as well, aren't we? So I'm sure there are uh, American police procedural books, but I think I think there's a really good point there. And at present, in the in in Britain, in Scotland, and uh, the wider United Kingdom. There is definite uh, tension between uh, police and uh, citizens. Um, there's uh, cases going on at the present, the Sheikh Bayou case that's going on in Scotland uh, about uh, the killing of a, a black citizen by police officers. Um, so that, that inquiry is going on at the moment. Um, anybody follows British politics will be aware of the cases around the Met Police, the Metropolitan Police, who uh, uh, it beggars belief the things that have been going on there, you know, the, the crimes that have been being committed, the racist uh, interactions. So I think this, uh, this uncomfortableness between the citizenry and the police that's expressed in the novels is again, expressed uh, an expression of wider society that tension that real tension actually is there um anderson and rilke as you say they're <laughs> they're, they're friends friend-ish friend adjacent <laughs> yes, friendlies? They, are they friendlies perhaps they know each other they know each other well and they've got that thing that they can read each other and I think that's a that's a strange thing. You've known somebody so long that you can read them. You can see, oh, you you don't like this, or you you do like this, or you're tempted to this. <laughs> and they can read each other very well. They know each other's motivations. And that's rather fun to work with. Um, because I guess what I'm looking for is a sense of nuance. And if Anderson is a police officer, and he's the only police officer really that appears in these these books if he as a police officer is bad through and through, then that's not particularly interesting, you know? And if Rilke is good through and through, then that's not interesting either. So the, the little bit of grit, the tension between them, and the fact that uh, Rilke very much admires Rose, you know, Rilke's a, a gay man, but he very much admires his boss, Rose, who they rub along in a spiky, sort of quite fam familial fashion, actually. It's more like family. You fall in, you fall out. Uh, as you say, Anderson, well, Anderson would like to marry Rose, but he would also like her to straighten out a little bit, you know. He would like her to be squarer than she is. But of course, it's it's the things that are not square about her that attracts him. So there's that uh, push-pull as well. <laughs> he would like her to be a police officer's wife. Well, he's not going to get, you know, he's not he's not going to get vanilla. She's never going to be vanilla. And so these contradictions and the way that things will never quite fit. Uh, do you use that word shonky? We would say something a bit shonky. It's like the, the table that's got the wobbly leg. <laughs> it, 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 things that don't quite fit perfectly. But it, it sort of works, you know, it works. You know, when you were talking about Anderson and you're talking about Rilke, I was thinking... It is a good relationship uh, because they 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 can read each other. They know each other. They're on opposite, not exactly opposite sides. Wilke is not a criminal. No, 
Um, he may wander into sort of dubious territory, but he's not a drug dealer. He's not a pimp. He's not a, a, a fence. He doesn't deal in obviously stolen goods. No. Um, but they also have this sort of mutual use for each other. And, you know, I, I found that very, very true and and it just rang true. Yes, and I guess uh, I guess Anderson has to stick within parameters that Rilke doesn't, and he can also look the other way. And I think sometimes uh, we have a choice. You know, sometimes we can look the other way and pretend we didn't pretend we didn't see it. You know, I, I didn't see that. I was looking over here. <laughs> I, just, I, I just didn't see that at all. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And so I think they have, and I, perhaps it comes back again to that idea of the the natural laws, uh, you know, that idea of we, we know essentially what is right and wrong. And sometimes uh, the law can, can come up, the law can be a blunt instrument, you know, the law is meant to be there to help and protect us. But sometimes it can be a blunt instrument and it doesn't get the nuances. And Anderson's uh, savvy enough, he's bright enough to see that. And he's also, I think, largely sympathetic to, uh, you know, a, a point previously where people would have been very prejudiced against queer people. Anderson has not been like that. And I think this is quite uh, special for men of that generation, of the, you know, the 20 years ago, for straight men in a very, you know, a, a job of uh, the kind that Anderson's doing. So I, I think I am sympathetic towards him. He's, he's, he didn't really agree with prosecuting or persecuting gay people. And so there's a sympathy there as well as an acknowledged when it comes down to it, you're probably an okay person. And he's mad about Rose. So how bad can he be? Yeah, he adores her. <laughs> he just thinks she's, uh, from the moment that they meet, he's just, uh, well, hello. <laughs> <laughs> And she thinks he's she thinks he's rather dashing as well. So it's a nice, you know, and finds I guess uh, his straightness, his squareness, endearing. You know, she finds it endearing and amusing, and possibly you know possibly nice to have somebody who's mad about you and is also safe. It's, you know, because that can be quite nice uh, if you've got too many outlaws around you. <laughs> It can feel a bit, uh, a bit, a bit unsafe. Well, you know, I guess that brings me to my final question. These are these are wonderful characters. It seems like you are are happy to be back with them. So, are I'm not talking about sequels because I had this discussion with with Denise Minai. Just uh, it was just published on an interview I did with her on, in Crime Reads, and we actually. I didn't include that part because I, I want to do actually a second part of the difference between sequels and follow-ups. Yeah. I see the second cut as a follow-up, not a sequel. Yeah. A sequel to me is, uh, you know, the uh, elements of one book finding their way into the next book and, uh, you know, as sort of an overarching arc. A follow-up is an entirely different story, different set of circumstances, in this case, different house, different circumstances. 
Yeah, it's it's this it's a similar world. It's the same world twenty years on, and it's set. This book is set. Uh, it's set firmly uh, in twenty twenty two. You know, it's a post pandemic book. There's a consciousness of pandemic, and the pandemic is over. And it doesn't get mentioned a lot, but we know that it's happened, and we can see the economic effect. We can see uh, premises, shops, and bars that haven't haven't made it through. There's some some people haven't made it through. So that uh, consciousness is there without being too dwelt on. But you're right, it's based now. I'm very fond, I'm very fond of the works of uh, Patricia Highsmith. I, I love her books. And I always liked the, the way that she handled the Tom Ripley books. And, uh, you know, that, that she goes back to them, I think, every decade, once, well, roughly every 10 years, and uh, the talented Mr. Ripley kicks off this incredible character. And the, the, I, I guess there's elements of uh, the consequences of the first book, but I like how she returned. And I'd always thought, oh, I'd like to go back to Rilke after 10 years, and it didn't happen. It was 20 years. <laughs> but you're right, it's not continuation. You don't have to have read that first book. Yeah, the, the world is still there. The people are there. And the people have changed too. So um, Roka's friend, Les, he's still the same man, but he's also changed. You know, he's, he's, got, um, he's got a little bit slicker, actually. He's, got, he's still, because uh, Les is a, a friend again, who Roka's known for many, many years. He is a drug dealer. He is somebody who likes to, to wear, to cross-dress, as we would have said in the past. Uh, he's pretty hard you know he's a, a hard guy he's a very witty guy and um, but he has changed I think in the second book in that he's slicker he's 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 got more smarts um, and that that was fun to do I guess as a writer you also want to try and get better and you don't want to be repeating yourself too much and maybe that's why I didn't go back to this world earlier because I didn't feel I had much to add um, but 20 years on with the changes that have happened, I felt I wanted to, to I don't know, not address them, engage with them, engage with them and explore them and have, have some fun, you know, because I think uh, one of the, the essential joys of working with Rilke and his friends, this cast, is that they have fun. There's a lot of hard things happening, but they're, they're really alive, you know, they're really alive in the world. And when you're talking about all the difficulties that are coming towards us and we can feel them, can't we? We can really feel them. Um, and I'm writing a book right now that's based on the 1930s, partly because we can feel these things coming. And, you know, when we look historically, I, I don't know about you, but you think, gosh, I wonder what I would do then. And now we're asking ourselves, what do I do now? What do right. I do now? How do I behave now? Um, so, yeah, I think that the fact that they're very alive and they're living, and maybe this is the other thing about engaging with uh, crime fiction, because it's something that acknowledges precarity and acknowledges that, uh, you know, death is here. It's like there's, uh, there's all those fantastic German uh, dances of the death. <laughs> that sometimes you might be looking over your shoulder and you didn't know. <laughs> so we better have a really good time now. 
and this man says why I have no money in the bank because <laughs> because of living in the present. <laughs> Please tell me that if if Wilke at all are going to return, it won't be another twenty years. Uh, no, I, I, it's funny. Um, I've got a fantastic friend, uh, a Yemeni poet, Sosan Al Riki, and Sosan. I was saying to, to Sosan, you know, I thought about going back to this book before, but I just out this world, but I just didn't have it. And I said, no, it was like sometimes I would see Rilke in the street, but he wouldn't look at me. And, and then she said, so who spoke first? Was it you or was it him? And it was like, I, you know, like our eyes met. And it was like, yeah, we can, we can do it now. I can do it now. And I do think, I think I have another, another Rilke book in me. You know, I don't know if I have four, but I think I have a, I think I have a third one. Um, so I've written a new book. I've written a, a crime book based around a university, which I had a great deal of fun writing and working on this 1930s book. Who knows if that will work? But I do, I do hope that uh, there'd be another Rilke book before too long, within the next, within the next five years. <laughs> well, I hope I, A, I will still have the podcast and B, I'll maybe be able to talk to you about your uh, crime fiction set in universities. I do oh, I love know. a university-based crime fiction oh, book. Oh my goodness. I know the stakes are, the stakes are so uh, strange in universities, aren't they? But I think it's, it's got that joy of a, you know, an ancient uh, system, um, a, a system with parameters again. Um, <clears throat> and also people who are highly motivated, you know, really motivated and have their eyes on something uh, that they're, <clears throat> excuse me, that have their eyes on something that they're directed towards. And, you know, the, the, the clash, you're not, sometimes you're working with the most amazing people, but you don't get on with everybody. And I think this, the idea of jealousy is motivation, love affairs, all of those things happen within the close society. Yes, and people who've been, you know, sparring sometimes for decades, but you can have feuds that have gone on for 40 years. People have forgotten what it was about originally. <laughs> it was about the Oxford comma or something. Also, of course, it's about obsession and crime yes. fiction is often about obsession. And that's one of the things that I love about academics is uh, that often their work is driven in the most positive ways by obsessions that uh, we as lay people might not quite understand. But, you know, that focus uh, I think is very useful for crime fiction because often it too is about obsessions and where obsessions can take us, uh, you know, when you just cannot, you cannot step back, you know. I like uh, the books that I like to read often are about somebody who took a step and then they took another step and then they took another step. <sighs> Suddenly, oh no, things have gone very bad <laughs> and they can't retrace those steps. It's, it's gone too far already. I think that crime fiction is a fantastic window, as you discussed, crime fiction is a fantastic window into uh, what motivates us as humans uh, for the good and the bad. And that's a wonderful way to study humankind. And you also make a good point, especially with crime fiction that is set in the past, we have an opportunity to examine how other people dealt with situations. And as you also pointed out, 
where we look to ourselves and say, what would I have done and what will I do? Yeah, and it's very, you know, it's so difficult, isn't it, when we look at history, because we look at history with the knowledge of what came next. And so we're looking with a, a consciousness that the people at the time didn't have. You know, sometimes we think, well, but why didn't you do that? And it's because they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know, they, you know, they hoped uh, that everything would just work itself out, as, as often as often things do, don't they? You know, often we... We, we seem to go up to the cliff and then recede. Uh, so, so we're in, I think, one of those points just now when we hope we hope everything will be okay. But, uh, you know, in, in the poem, when Burns, Robert Burns, our national poet, writes uh, his poem to the mouse, you know, he says to the mouse, you know, you're lucky because you, you, don't, you don't look to the future. You're just a wee animal and you live in the, the here and the now and the present. But as a human being, I look to the future and I, I hope and fear, he says. And I think that's the human condition often, hope and fear. <laughs> and fiction allows us uh, a vector, a means of uh, exploring some of those hopes and fears. And we can do it from the, the pleasure of our armchair or we can do it on the top of the bus or we can listen when we're driving our car through those smoggy <laughs> smoggy smoggy canyons that we have to traverse um so I think fiction for me and I love crime fiction I love the I love the narrative force you know I love the I love that there's a central story um I think it's you know crime fiction at its very best to something that helps us I'm just try and understand the world I'm reading uh, Gillian Flynn just now, I think is just such a wonderful oh, she's, writer. Yeah. Oh, she's yeah. so amazing. And uh, I'm just, I'm in awe of her. I think what a, what a fantastic writer she is and what a great observer of contemporary life, you know. And a day, she's a writer that doesn't step away. She's, she's, uh, she doesn't look away. She's, she writes dangerous things, doesn't she? She goes into That's dangerous territory. And she takes the slings and the arrows and she makes us ask questions. And sometimes we don't agree with her. And sometimes you think, oh, I didn't agree, but I agree now. <laughs> She's fantastic. Delighted that you could come on the Oh, thank podcast. you so much. Can't wait to have you on the podcast again, if you oh, were to. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love it. <laughs>